Shalom and welcome to another in our series of podcasts from Temple Beth Am, a dynamic center for conservative Judaism in Los Angeles. This is a recording of a Shabbat sermon by Rabbi Adam Kligfeld. I will never forget my first visit to Auschwitz. It was a warm, cloudless summer day in 1990. Now, Auschwitz I is an older and much smaller camp than what people imagine in their minds when they think of Auschwitz. And it was initially used as an artillery barracks for the Polish army. And it's laid out symmetrically with brick buildings and tidy green lawns. On the warm summer day that I was there, with crystal blue skies and birds happily chirping, Auschwitz looked less to me like horror and extermination and genocide and murder than like Harvard Square. I'm not sure what I expected. I knew there would be no machine guns or Nazis or bloodshed, but I somehow assumed that the space would exude the Holocaust in some profound and horrific way. For the few, first few minutes I was there, it did not. Was this really the hell on earth we had learned about. And then, out of the corner of my eye, I saw this. And there's no exaggeration here. Two exceedingly thin men in tattered, striped prisoners' clothing with hollow, sunken faces were walking barefoot. Behind them, I noticed, were two other men in Nazi uniforms holding machine guns, menacing looks on their faces. I turned around and all of a sudden, as if I were in a nightmare come true, the area was swarming with prisoners and Nazis. For about two minutes, we had no idea what was going on. And I remember feeling true terror, as if I had entered a wormhole and that I was truly back in Auschwitz. Eventually, we learned that there was a German movie company there that day, filming a movie about the Shoah. The men I saw were actors practicing or staying in character in between shoots. We were not back in 1943. I was an American, safe, unthreatened in 1990. But I will never forget those two minutes of phantasmagorical horror, two minutes of not being able to convince myself where I was and when I was. This week's news and screaming headlines brought me back to that memory. What year is this? Are we in America 2022? Or is this whole world impossibly back in Europe in the 1940s? Once again, good people are left with their jaws open, their hearts flayed, wondering how it is possible again for one man to manipulate the world order, initiate chaos and death, with there seemingly being nothing we can do about it. Other disquieting questions arose in my mind this week as well. Does humanity possibly never really progress? We progress technologically, but that just makes it all the more scary that we do not necessarily progress anthropologically or evolutionarily. The human need to conquer, to win, and even to kill is made more terrifying 
by our ability to produce the means to do that more efficiently and more viciously. I do not know who will win this war, but I already know who has lost it. All of us. All those who dream that humanity is capable of transcending this scourge. Once again, we have lost and we are lost. This conflict 10,000 miles away is really very close to us. I, like many of you, trace my ancestry back to the land of Ukraine. Now, while I have no particular love lost for Ukrainians and Cossacks and marauders of my people in the past, the land itself is rich with my family's stories and blood. My paternal great-grandfather was from Makarov, just east of Kiev, and he served in the Tsar's army before immigrating to the U.S., I know many of you have similar bonds. I was in the Ukraine twice, once in 1993 leading a group of USY teenagers, and once in 2013 with a group of rabbis. Witness to the inspiring renaissance of Jewish life in the burgeoning but seemingly steady democracy. And on that trip, I both met Jews on the edge of poverty, despair, and isolation those that would have just disappeared into oblivion were it not for the intention and generosity of Jewish federations worldwide. And I also met young Jews, hipster Jews, newly religious Jews, newly realizing they were Jewish Jews, intrepid rabbis serving as Chabad emissaries and as conservative Masorti versions of such emissaries, relentlessly devoted to helping life in UK, Jewish life in the Ukraine rise like a phoenix. Their story and their lives are intertwined with ours. And I wonder, this week, how many of those that I met are in danger, terrified, perhaps injured or killed. We have Bethon members who spent their formative years in Kiev and other cities in Ukraine before arriving to the U.S. as refugees. And whatever their mixed feelings are about Ukraine, the nation, their homeland is at war. And that's an awful thing to behold. And from the sublime to the more prosaic cruise missiles and air raids and rolling tanks over there impact gas prices and stock indices and national politic politicking over here. There is no there in some way. And so we're implicated on so many levels. And we're implicated in a war during an era in which barely, many of us barely have felt we've been making it through the day or the week or the month. Omicron may be weakening, and we're gathered here together in a sense of safety, but we're still a society in a pandemic, riven by incessant conflict, families torn apart by political and biomedical differences of opinion, teachers and parents of children who have not known normal school since three academic years ago. We weren't doing all that great last week. And now this. This is a long introductory way of me saying to all of you that I'm with you in fear and worry and pain. And the length of the introduction is a window into my own confusion about what even to say, what words to offer after the introduction is over. It might surprise you to hear me say that I'm not surprised. I'm not speaking on geopolitical terms as if I have any inside information on Vladimir Putin's motivations and plans and what southeastern Ukraine symbolizes 
in the mind of a Russian nationalist. That map is just today's tableau onto which the unfolding and often awful art of the human condition is drawn. I'm not surprised that humanity is again at war. Have we ever not been? My friend and colleague, Rabbi Joe Schwartz, shared these words on his Facebook page this week. And I read them as realist, not as cynically pessimist. He wrote, quote, human beings are a warlike species. We always have been and always will be. Americans of my generation and younger have lived through an anomalous bubble in human history, a time when many could escape the universal experience of war. And we mistook this bubble for some decisive break from the rule. We even decided, deceived ourselves, that we have no nature at all, that all is culture and culture can be shaped by our own whims. But this was a trick of the light. Nature is very strong. And here he quotes from the, ver- the verse from Genesis, Kol yetzer machshavot libo shel adam rakra kol hayom. All the urges and all the thoughts in the heart of a person are evil the entire day. He concludes, we are about to be reacquainted with ourselves. Now, many lovely folks that I know took issue with what he wrote on Facebook, and they commented things like, we are better than that, Joe. I'm not an inevitable war maker. I pray for peace, and I believe in it. Those responses warmed my heart, but I'm not sure they were apposite. I commented on Joe's post with these words. I wrote, as the historical anthropologist Yuval Noah Harari has written about voluminously, we are barely evolved apes. Our cultural veneer, radically young in evolutionary terms, is just a thin covering over primal biological and anthropological urges. Our attempts to understand and curb these primal desires are admirable. I'm a fan. But we ought not be surprised when warnings from venerable books and promises from signed accords do little to stem this relentlessness encoded deep in our genes. So I am weary and afraid for Ukraine and for Europe and the world order, and even on some level for our own well-being. But I'm not surprised. I'm not surprised that humans have given other humans power and then yielded to that power and then watched as that powerful human wielded that power. I think there are mostly truly good people among us. And I think that we work exceedingly hard every day to keep our baser instincts at bay. And I think the world does not need that many people who are either incapable of or uninterested in or disincentivized from tamping down those primal urges for there to be havoc, for there to be war. Breshit Genesis spoke about the part of the human soul as being riddled with ugliness. And other texts grapple with our warrior spirit as well. The great Hasidic master of Nachman of Bratslav, the same one who famously said that to be happy is a great mitzvah, he wrote about the near endless wars within our own soul. 
and how they mirror the wars among people and among peoples. In a statement that's part nihilist and part all too realpolitik, he wrote, Even if one person doesn't want to fight, and wants to sit in tranquility and in peace. Despite that, such a person is forced to be smacked within those fights and wars. Rabbi Nachman, I think, spoke the truth here on many levels. On the one hand, Ukraine seemingly did not ask for this war, but they must fight it. And we confront interpersonal versions of such battles all the time. But perhaps Rabbi Nachman was also hinting at the moral obligation that as much as good people and good nations would like to sit in quiet tranquility, another person's call for war obligates our attention and possibly our service. As much as we prefer to look away and enjoy Shabbat on Zering Field and let Ukraine help Ukraine and go about our lives here, Jewish wisdom is that there are moments in which we cannot disengage. And when will this reality, this macabre rhythm end? According to Rabbi Nachman, Sheyavo HaMashiach, when the Messiah comes. May it come speedily in our days. Then and only then will, will this discord be defeated and there'll be a great peace in the world. In other words, until then, until we earn the messianic era to be human is to confront this reality with resolve, but perhaps not with surprise, with clever and effective diplomacy, with all attempts possible to limit bloodshed and societal devastation, but also with a sense that this is the price of living with that uber-capable organ inside our skulls, an organ that could be weaponized by powerful and evil human beings to harness and act on inextinguishable evolutionary forces and thus draw us into conflict. Leo Tolstoy famously wrote, I don't understand, I decidedly do not understand why men can't live without war. Rabbi Nachman apparently understood it all too well. So I wish Rabbi Nachman were wrong, but I fear he is right. Which leaves us where exactly on Shabbat? When we want to not only comfort and confront the world as it is, but dream about and pray for and work towards what the world might be. What loftiness is there for us to connect to after being reminded of such sad earthly realities? So here, too, our tradition speaks to us. We go to the Torah, as we always do, and its recognition of the human condition and also its counterproposals to it. I was emailing this week with Yehuda Kurtzer, an eminent scholar of Jewish thought who serves as the president of the Shalom Hartman, Hartman Institute North America. And we were discussing this week's Parsha, Vayakel. And in particular, the chiastic structure, ABA, of the last five parshas of the book of Exodus. We've got two parshas that give the instructions of how to build the Mishkan, the portable sanctuary. And then we have two parshas, including Vayakel, 
which described just how the Israelites fulfilled those very instructions. And what's in between those two pair of readings? Last week's Parsha, Kitisa, and the sin of the golden calf. Yehuda sees beauty and import in that literary structure. He believes the plainest reading of the text is that the Mishkan, the tabernacle, sits in the very middle of the camp of the Israelites in order to push against our base instincts and instruct us on what it means to build communities and a reality where intimacy and holiness are our guiding light. Not power, not covetousness, and not might. In his own words, quote, intimacy is why the golden calf is situated between the stories of the instructions and in the building of the Mishkan. It testifies to the emptiness in the midst of the Israelites that prompted them to fill it with an idol. In other words, left to their instinctual devices, the ancient Israelites, as with all humans, were drawn to magic, to the illusion of power, to the false divinity of an idol, the need to control, with all their efforts to triumph being directed upwards as if with enough effort they too could become gods. With the Mishkan in the center of the camp, Jewish and Torah-based movement and life was centripetal with members of the tribe focused on one another and shared purpose and the holy, intimate work that kept them focused on the good. The episode of the golden calf sits right in the middle of the verses about the Mishkan as if to remind us that our aspirations are to invert that map with the holy work of building community and a life of meaning at the center of our reality and jettisoning false idols to their far periphery. It's hard work even for us. It's much harder work for those who control armies and who want to resurrect defeated autocracies and who see no one truly willing to stop their march forward. God doesn't always step in. Judaism and our sacred texts are attempting to tame our wild, beastly instincts. And while we cannot ourselves control how world leaders disrupt, then hopefully reconstruct civil and international order, we can use these fraught times to remind ourselves what our highest duty is as human citizens and as Jews, so that our lives, at the very least, are the antithesis of the ones who are destroying the lives of so many others. Yehuda pointed me to a profound text by Professor, Professor Moshe Halbertal, the renowned Israeli philosopher. And in it, Halbertal makes the case that the Jewish notion of sanctity is alert to the human ambition for power and control and seeks to undermine it, or at least to curtail it or channel it. Using the examples of Shabbat and the Shemitah sabbatical year, which we happen to be in right now, and even the Mishkan and its successor, the Great Temple in Jerusalem, which was the apex of holiness, Halbertal explains that for the Jew, the sacred is that which is beyond human control, beyond human ownership, beyond human manipulation. Shabbat, the day in which we purchase and gain nothing and conquer nothing, but rather submit to the creator of the universe, that's our holy day. And Shemitah, when the land reverts to being in control of itself, rather than relentlessly being used and squeezed and forced to produce for us, 
That's our holy year. For the Jew, it's the Mishkan, the sanctuary, not the seat of government, not the Kremlin. That is the most sacred, the most significant. We gather and pray in an edifice in which humans submit to the will and control of the Holy One, thus releasing or at least sublimating our urge to dominate. That submission is within our power today, even today. That conscious defeat of the human drive to defeat others is our sacred obligation when we come to pray. When we remember Judaism's definition of our highest moral pathway. When war threatens, we recommit to peace. When tyrants attack, we defend and seek once again to help to create a world of protection. When the evil among us inevitably bare their teeth and devolve backwards into animalistic tendencies, we pray and we say that we are humans proudly evolved and still evolving. And from a potentially monstrous core, we can strive to live like angels. May God and may the leaders of goodness protect the citizens of Ukraine and of Russia and help steer civilization once again away from war and towards the peace we not only deserve, but which against odds and urges we know we are capable of. You have been listening to another in our series of podcasts from Temple Beth Am, a dynamic center for conservative Judaism in Los Angeles. If you enjoy these podcasts, we invite you to write a review on the Apple Podcast site or wherever you get your podcasts. For more information about Temple Beth Am Los Angeles, go to tbala.org.